Here's what we read. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. All hail King Jesus. Glory to God forever. God, we thank you for your blood. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you for the cross. And this morning, as we read your word, we ask that you would illuminate scripture to our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would speak and that we might leave changed to become more like you as we seek to follow you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You guys shake somebody's hand as you sit down this morning. Say good morning, greet someone today. Oh, you got that for me. Thanks, brother. Well, I'm Pastor David. If we have not met yet, uh, it's good to see you guys today. It's good to be with our church family who's watching online as well. And today is going to be, I'm just going to tell you out at the beginning, it's going to be one of those days. It's not, it's not going to be necessarily sunshine and rainbows type of day, okay? But that's not what Christianity is. We teach the totality of Scripture here, all of it. The hard parts, the, the parts that are convicting, the parts that are difficult, all of Scripture, and that includes uh, causing us to look at some Scripture that sometimes is a little bit uncomfortable for us. I was, just around the time I graduated high school, uh, my mom all, that's what, that's what we call my grandma, my mom all, I think it's a Southern thing, they, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Now, we had been noticing some personality changes in her, some forgetfulness. But right about the time that I went to college, it started getting worse. And so I would bounce back and forth between Virginia and Ohio, and I would get these snapshots of my grandmother who had changed significantly. First, it was forgetfulness, and then it was she would lose her speech, and then, you know, th there, there was no recognition in her eyes when you would come to visit and eventually, after a long battle, uh, my grandma died. I, I got that call. And I'll be honest, I did not want to go to that funeral. I didn't want to see my mama in the state that she was in, in her weakness, in her emaciated form. Because my mama, and you guys might have a grandma like this too, her house was fresh-baked rolls. I mean, it was warmth, it was love, it was kindness. And to see her at this weak point, it was hard, and I didn't want to do it. And I got some advice from somebody who told me that you need to honor your grandmother, and you need to be there. You need to walk up to that casket and honor her. And I'm glad that I did. I'm glad I listened to that advice. I walked up to my grandma, and I stared right into her face, and I prayed a prayer thanking God for the godly life that she had lived. And I honored her in that moment of weakness. And today, as we look at Christ 
And as the crucifixion begins, my encouragement to you is to not look away. Stare right into the face of what's going on with Jesus today. And I want this thought to be going through your mind as you do this. Jesus did all of this for me. Jesus did all of this for you. And so when you're tempted, when it gets heavy, when you want to pick up your phone and check, check your fantasy football lineups, I, I don't want you to do that today. Let's honor Jesus because he did all of this for me. Let's go back to verse 1 here. We're going to walk through this kind of verse by verse. Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. We're going to get back to what that means in a moment. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Now, we're going to read this passage, John 19, 1 through 11 today, and we're going to break it down, and we're going to talk about the three major characters that you see in this passage. And the first one is this man. We see him right in verse 1, Pilate, Pontius Pilate. He is a representative of the Roman government. He is the ruler in Judea. Rome, the mighty imperial power of Rome. That's who Pilate represents. History tells us that Pilate was a soldier before he got into politics. He is a strong man, a brutal ruler. He's pragmatic, which means he's willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish his objectives. And Caesar has given him some objectives. You see, Judea was a rebellious area, and Pilate had a job, actually two main jobs. If you're in Pilate's shoes, here's the two things you need to worry about. Number one, you need to keep the peace. There can be no rebellion. You don't want Caesar hearing about problems on your watch down there in Judea. And number two, you need to keep that tax money flowing, all right? No problems with taxes, no problems with rebellion. And if you can accomplish those two things, if you're Pilate, you might just keep your job and you might just keep your head. And so Pilate is faced in this passage with a tricky situation. In chapter 18, the Jewish religious leaders bring Jesus right to his doorstep and accompanying them is this mob of people. And so Pilate has this mob of people on his front doorstep and they're angry, and they're yelling, and he can see that this could become a problem. But on the other hand, he's already declared in chapter 18 that he doesn't think Jesus is guilty of anything. And so you can see his politician's mind start to work a little bit at this point. And that politician's mind starts working and he's asking himself the question, how can I get these religious freaks off my front porch? But without violating his conscience, which says that Jesus is actually innocent. So he thinks maybe, just maybe, if I have Jesus flogged, I might sometimes say scourged, scourged, flogged, it's the same thing, just so you don't get confused. If I have Jesus flogged, maybe I can calm this mob down. Ultimately, it's gross, it's unjust, but Pilate decides that he will take someone that he believes is innocent and have him scourged in order to protect his political power, in order to protect himself against a possible rebellion. 
Because ultimately, and this is point number two for today, ultimately, if you're taking notes, Pilate is obsessed with power and he's full of pride. Power is a dangerous thing. When you think about the vices, you think about greed or lust, but often we don't think about power. But power is truly a dangerous vice. My favorite biographer, I'm a nerd, I read biographies, and I picked this one up by Robert Caro. He's my favorite biographer. I, I picked up this biography of Lyndon Johnson. Do we all know President Lyndon Johnson? Do we remember that? Okay, President Lyndon Johnson, I, I don't know why I picked this up, but thousands and thousands of pages later, I put this biography down and was just blown away. Blown away by the ambition and the lust for power that Lyndon Johnson had. From like a young age, we're talking like six, seven years old, you saw a, a, a child that was ambitious for power. And as he grew older, there was no lie he would not tell. There is no reputation he wouldn't destroy. He had zero principles. He would do or say whatever it took in order to get and to keep power. Robert Caro, after studying Johnson for literally 20 years in these four-part biographies, he said in an interview about Johnson, he said, For Johnson, all men are just tools. To use them, he had to know their weaknesses. Man, that's scary, right? Somebody who thinks of people as tools and looks to find out what their weaknesses are so that he can exploit them for his personal power. That's, that's what power can do. And ultimately, power is what a politician is after, and Pilate is a politician. And so he decides to appease this mob. He orders his soldiers to scourge Jesus, to humiliate Jesus. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They, they press that crown of thorns into his skull, and, and you can imagine the blood begins to flow down his forehead and get into his eyes. They put a purple robe on him, mocking him. And now let's go back, let's go back and talk about that crown a little bit more, because the reason for putting a crown of thorns on Jesus isn't pain, ultimately, is it? It's humiliation. They know what the charge against Jesus is. Oh, you say you're king of the Jews, I'll give you a crown. Here you go, your majesty. What's really interesting, and I think that it speaks to just the greatness of God, like he's next level, God is unbelievable. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, that's where the fall occurs, the fall. Adam and Eve sin, they go against what God asks them to do. And as a punishment for that, they're kicked out of the garden. The woman gets, let's be honest, the raw end of the deal. She has to bear children now. Guys, we, we have to work. But what, what God says is that as a part of the curse, the ground will now produce thorns. Thorns are a symbol of the curse of sin, and Jesus wears our sin as a crown. Man, the humiliation of that. They're mocking Jesus. They put that purple robe on him. Matthew, the book of Matthew, records that they put a reed or a scepter in his hand, and then they take turns just punching him in the face, beating him. They came up to him, verse 3 says, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. But before they did all that, before the crown of thorns, before the robe, before the beatings, they scourged him. They had him flogged. 
Now, scourging was a terrible punishment, but it was not meant just to be a punishment. I mean, it was brutal. Many people would die from being scourged, from being flogged. The goal wasn't to kill someone, but many would be. And historians say that actually people who survived being scourged were often driven mad. They were insane. They were never okay again. But scourging is the sort of thing that is meant to be a public spectacle. It's meant to say, this is what happens if you challenge the might of Rome. Does that make sense? You can see a similar thing is in some fundamentalist Islamic countries where they'll have these public punishments where they'll chop off a hand in public. This is what happens if you steal in our society. They'll stone people to death. This is what happens if you commit adultery. It's very rare now, but it's meant as a, as a sort of psychological warfare, the government putting people in their place. We don't know all the details of Jesus' scourging. The biblical writers don't go into detail about what that was, but we do have some historical writings about what scourging looked like. We know that the Romans liked to use a multi-tailed whip. So there would be a a handle and, and a whip with multiple tails on it. And at the end of that whip would be bits of metal or bone or uh, stones, hooks of metal, bones, stones. And then the person would be stripped down. The clothes would be taken off of them. They would be bent over a pillar and their hands tied across on the other side so that they're stretched all the way out. And then an experienced Roman soldier would take that scourge and they would hit the person who was bent over that across the back, across the side and stomach and the legs. And as that multi-tailed whip would bite into the flesh, they would yank it back out, pulling chunks of skin and flesh away with the whip. There was no limit in Roman punishment to how many times you could be hit with a scourge. It was until the message was got. Ancient authorities, these different historians, say that the idea was generally that the skin and the flesh would be torn from the body until the bones were exposed. The ancient historian Eusebius says of martyrs, he says that they were torn by the scourges deep down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and their organs would be exposed to sight. This is what Jesus was going through. The goal was to inflict damage brutally and publicly to send a message. And after Jesus went through this scourging up to a point where he was still alive because that was the goal, they pressed a crown of thorns into his head. They put a purple robe around his shoulders and then they beat him mercilessly. And Pilate, who stands by and watches this, he says in verse 4, Pilate went out again and he says to this crowd that's standing out on his front porch, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. All of that to someone that he believes is not guilty. So Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate says to them, behold the man. Pilate declares Jesus' innocence, but scourges him anyway. 
Isaiah prophesied in the Old Testament that Messiah, Messiah would be beaten until he's no longer recognizable as a man. That's what just happened. Pilate parades the king of the world before the Jews and he says, behold the man, look at your king now. This is enough, go home. Pilate is willing to do this to an innocent man because he's obsessed with power and he's full of pride. And now the second of our major characters from our passage of scripture comes on to the stage. These are the Jewish religious leaders and rulers. Dylan did a great job last week talking about the Jewish religious leaders. These are men who have power and control in Israel. They control the religious system. They're scrupulous about their religious laws. They won't go into Pilate's house because they're afraid that a Gentile will defile them and prevent them from uh, being a part of the Passover later on. They have power and control in Israel. They are the teachers of God's law. They are the bringers of hope and life. These are the religious leaders. And here's what it says in verse 6 when they come onto the stage. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, being Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. We have a law. We'll get back to that for now. But the Jewish religious leaders see in Jesus a loss of control. They had had control in Israel. They had had religious control. They were the teachers of the law. And believe it or not, whether you think you like it or not, you like having control too. I mean, there wouldn't be the term backseat driver if you didn't also like having control. You like to have control, but do we actually have control? One of the hardest things for me as a dad has been realizing that I can't actually control what my kids do. (laughs) I can't. I can't control what they do or what they say. That's the truth. I'm not in control. I can teach them. I can give them an example to follow. But when it comes down to it, do we get to control what our kids say? Is anybody out there? No? No. Maybe you do. Maybe you can teach me something. Do we control what our kids ultimately choose to do? No, we don't. I was, I came home from work the other day. It was beautiful. And Cohen runs up to me. Cohen was eight years old at the time. He just turned nine. He came up to me and said, Dad, come push me on this swing. Our neighbors have this tree swing. Uh, It's on the side of their house. It's in their yard. It's this big swing. And so I ran out there with him, and I'm pushing him on this swing. And then my daughter, Kaya, she's she's seven now. She was six then. She comes running out, and she wants her turn. You know how that goes. And so I'm pushing Kaya on the swing, and it's just one of those moments. The sun is setting. The weather is beautiful. My kids are giggling and laughing, and and I'm just thinking, man, I need to remember this. Do you guys ever have a moment like that? Just like, man, I got to remember this moment. And so I'm having this like spiritual moment. Thank you, Jesus, for this moment. I don't want to forget these giggles and, and, and this opportunity to push my kids 
And then I look to my right and my son has his pants around his ankles and he's peeing on the neighbor's tree. Just out in front of everyone. At the neighbor's house, there's no fence, there's Main Street. I didn't teach him that, okay? You can rest assured. Ultimately, I can't control what he's going to do. I wish that I could control. I wish I had control, but I don't. The Jewish religious leaders have had control for so long over the people that when they see Jesus teaching something different than what they're teaching, they can't handle that loss of control. They might have a couple hundred people in synagogue and Jesus is gathering crowds of tens of thousands to hear him teach. And what he teaches is that they're wrong, that God is different than what you've been taught. And they see themselves losing that control. And because of that, they're willing to sacrifice their religious law and stand up and whip a crowd into a fury as they chant, crucify, crucify, in defiance of their very own religious laws. Because you know what the punishment for blasphemy was. It wasn't crucifixion. The punishment was very clearly stoning And they made the excuse, we're not allowed to do that. They did it to the martyr Stephen just a couple years later. The apostle Paul, how many times was he stoned? What was going on with the woman caught in adultery? I believe they were getting ready to stone her. The Jewish leaders are willing to give up any sense of their their religious law the moment that they sense that they're losing control. And that's because the religious leaders are obsessed with control. And they're filled with pride. The religious leaders are obsessed with control and they're full of pride. Verse 8, let's move on. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He enters his headquarters and he says to Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you won't speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? That's the pride coming through, right, in Pilate? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is the final part of the passage, and this is where we're really going to focus on the third of the major characters in this passage, the person of Jesus. And man, what a contrast we find. Because Pilate is obsessed with power and he's full of pride. The Jewish leaders are obsessed with control and they're prideful. And what we see in Jesus is completely different. I want you to notice three things that you can write down. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is not proud, Jesus is humble. In this moment, Jesus isn't proud. His pride isn't raised up in defiance. He's humble. Humility is something that God loves. The Bible says that God loves humility and that God opposes the proud. But man, humility is something that we struggle with. I mean, Satan's original sin people would say, is is pride. It's the one that got him thrown out of heaven. And we have been following in his footsteps ever since. 
Just look at our culture today. You're supposed to celebrate your achievements. Man, we have pride parades. Proud of who we are. I'm proud of what I do. I'm proud of, of just the way that I am. Pride is elevated. Pride is elevated. And yet Proverbs tells us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The Jewish leaders are proud. Pilate is proud and Jesus is humble. And you can truly understand the level of his humility if you go back to John chapter 5. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he teaches his disciples that, that, that God has granted to him, to Jesus, all authority to judge mankind. Someday, we will all be judged by Jesus. Jesus has that authority. All authority is his to judge all of mankind. And yet, what do we see in this passage? Jesus is humbly submitting himself to the judgment of his creation. As we follow after Jesus, Christians are meant to be followers of Jesus. Humility should be one of the hallmarks that we display as we follow after Christ. We shouldn't have haughty eyes. We shouldn't have a proud spirit. We should be humble in the way that our Savior was humble. The second thing that I want you to notice is that Jesus in this moment is steadfast. Jesus is humble and Jesus is steadfast. The charge against Jesus was that he claimed to be the Son of God. And if there was ever a time to deny that charge, it would be when that whip hits his back. But you don't hear Jesus crying out, just kidding. In this moment, Jesus never denies that he is who he says he is. Cults like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Christian scientists will deny the singular divinity of Jesus Christ. Islam will say that he was a prophet, but lower than Muhammad. Jesus claimed that he is the way the truth, and the life, and that there is no one that can come to the Father except through him. And in the moment of his greatest humiliation and pain, he was steadfast. And that should give us confidence. Man, if Jesus can be steadfast in that storm, is there a storm that you can walk through that scares him? You might be going through a difficult time. You might be going through a divorce. You might be struggling with an addiction. You might be wavering over your faith. You might be confused. You might be frightened. But I promise you that your Savior is not shaken. He will walk beside you, steady as ever, always with you. And you can trust that He will be steadfast. The last thing that I want you to see about Jesus is ultimately that Jesus is the one who is in control. Jesus is humble, he is steadfast, and he is in control. This is the last point for today, and this is the thing that I want you to consider for a moment, because Jesus assigns all authority when he's speaking to Pilate. He assigns all authority to God the Father. He is confident that ultimately God is in control. That he doesn't need to grasp to take it back. He doesn't need to win the argument. He doesn't need to fight. He doesn't need to send his disciples and his followers 
after, uh, you know, after him to try to break him out. He knows that God is ultimately in control of this situation. And as we follow after Jesus, we can have the same confidence. In this life, we will struggle. We will face hardships, diseases, surgeries. There will be accidents and fear. You will have questions. You'll be disappointed. You'll have highs and you'll have lows. But there will never be a moment in this life where Jesus loses control for a second of what's going on. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who is in control. This morning, I want you to consider for a moment who is in control of your life. Where is it that you have placed your faith and your trust? Some of us, we have put our hope in religion if I can just do the right things in the right order, I can be made right with God. If I can just, if I can just work harder at it, I can be good. Religion will always use fear and guilt and shame to exert control in your life. It will make promises that it can never keep. Maybe you're someone who has placed your, your faith and your control in politics. If we can just work to get the right leader elected, they'll pass the right laws. There will be justice and truth that will prevail. But as you can see from this passage, it's a dangerous game to place your hope in a politician. There's wickedness in political power. I think most of us, if we're honest, will say that I don't place my faith in anybody but right here in me. I've got this. I don't need anyone. I will save myself. Thank you very much. I can hang on to control because I can fix this. I will find happiness. I will get it right. I will try harder. I will fix my problems. I will make it better. It's pride, 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 thinking that we can fix something that only God can fix. In this passage, you can see so clearly the contrast between the wickedness of humanity and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Where is it that you'll place your faith? This morning, I want you to look full on into the eyes of our broken, humble Jesus. Imagine his bleeding body broken for you. The stripes from the flesh torn away. And he did it for you. We can place our faith in something that is demonstrated through his actions that his love for us is greater than anything we can imagine. 
Politics will make promises it can't keep. Religion will use fear and guilt and shame to try to control your life. But Jesus, Jesus offers freedom. Freedom from sin and its power in our life. Freedom from the anxiety of having to need control and hang on to control. Freedom to rest, to trust, knowing that God's got this. But here's the thing, when we go to Jesus, we have to be willing to get down there in the dust, in the dirt with him. We have to be willing to stare right into the face of that broken savior. We have to be willing to identify, to understand that what he went through, he went through because of me and my sin. My sin is what put him through this. And we need to kneel in that dust and we, we need to take up our cross and follow after him. And if we're not willing to get down in the dust with him, man, we're not willing to be glorified with him. This morning, I wanna invite you to just bow your heads and to close your eyes. We're gonna take a quiet moment to reflect because ultimately we're all left with a choice where is it that I'll place my faith we all place our faith somewhere I want to invite you this morning if you haven't ever done to place your faith in Jesus Christ Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy. He was the Messiah, prophesied for thousands of years. Because of sin in our life, because we have rebelled against God, because God is holy and just, there is punishment for that sin. And because there are none who are righteous, because there's no one that can live up to the perfect standard of God. God sent his son, Jesus, to take the punishment that we deserve, to die a death that was meant for us. But then Jesus, three days later, rose in power and in victory, demonstrating that he was exactly who he claimed to be that he holds power over the keys to death and sin, and he offers us new life. If you've never accepted that free gift of new life that Jesus offers, I wanna invite you to do that today. There's no magic words that you can say. It's all about your heart. There's no religious process that you have to go through. It's all about a heart that says, Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner who is in need of a savior. Right where you sit, in the silence of this moment, you can talk to God and you can say, God, I admit that I have sinned. Jesus, I see the sacrifice that you've made for me. I wanna invite you to save me. I need to be saved, save me, take away my sin. 
make me brand new. I'm giving up my control. Jesus, I want to follow after you. Grace is such a simple concept, but it's not free. The price that Jesus paid for our life was greater than anything that we can imagine. But I promise you, Scripture says that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you prayed that prayer for the first time and you meant it with all of your heart, that God says the angels in heaven rejoice in this moment because one who was lost has been found. Your sins have been wiped away. You have been made brand new. And we want to celebrate with you. So if you made that decision to follow Jesus today, I want to ask you to do something bold this morning. With everybody's eyes closed, every head bowed, I just want, to, I just want you to raise your hand up and identify yourself so that I can pray with you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to point you out. But just on the count of three, I want you to shoot your hand up if you prayed that prayer for the very first time. Don't be nervous. Don't be scared. Nobody's looking around. One, two, three. I prayed that prayer for the first time today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, who is it that you're placing your, your faith in? I want to invite you today, right where you sit, to just thank Jesus for his sacrifice. In just a moment, we're going to sing and we're going to worship. And I want us to worship and sing like people who have been set free from the power of sin and death. I don't want us to sing a song. I want us to worship our Savior. God, we love you. We thank you for the sacrifice that you gave, for the blood that you shed, Lord. We thank you that when everyone else is prideful, Lord, you are humble. When everyone else claims control, you are in control, Lord. When things get tough, you are steadfast. Jesus, we thank you for new life and we thank you for walking with us as we walk through this life. We worship you and we love you this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.